Well, Sonia prayed for us and for this sermon, so let's dive in. We're in Isaiah chapter 42. Not 42. Woo! Six. 46. We should trust in the Lord, the covenant God of Israel, the triune God of the Bible alone, and not in idols, since He sovereignly, powerfully, majestically, omnipotently carries us. I remember some time ago in my living room, I was in my living room with a a couple of Mormons that I had invited over. One of them was a young man who uh, appeared to be a little wet behind the ears, shall we say, and uh, his companion was a rather elderly gentleman who obviously had been doing uh, Mormon work for a very long time. Uh, one was the leader and the other one was uh, being mentored by him. Uh, we had a, a very good conversation um, as the seasoned mentor tried to show the young man how to lead a discussion. Uh, throughout the evening, I, being who I am, kept dropping fun questions throughout the conversation. Questions about God. Now, I have to admit that being familiar with their teachings, I knew all of the answers to the questions that I was asking. As Jennifer says, do you ever ask a question that you do not already know the answer to? But the questions weren't, of course, for my sake, they were for theirs. So I asked as they were talking, is your God the eternal, uncreated creator of all things that have ever existed? Or is it a created being? The young man turned to the older man, Anticipating the answer, well, our God was created by His God, of course, but then he quickly, expediently shifted the conversation back to where he wanted to go. After a few minutes, I asked another question. Is your God all-powerful? That is, does He have complete and utter control over all things everywhere and at all times? The young man turned to the older man, said, well, He's powerful, but He's not all-powerful. He then deflected and turned the conversation again. I continued throughout the evening. Does your God know all things, past, present, and future? Has your God always been perfectly righteous, always without sin? Is your God unchanging? Is your God the one and only true God? Apart from Him, there is no other, and there will never, ever be another God? To which... In each case, the older gentleman answered in the negative. And then came what I call the divine door knock. Somebody was knocking at the door. So I answered, and it was the neighbor. And it turns out that they had parked in my neighbor's parking space, and he needed them to move. So the old man got up and walked out the door, and the minute he crossed that threshold, I turned to the young man, and I said, I have a question you? Okay, what is it? I said, your God is a created, finite, ever-learning, ever-changing, not-all-powerful, reformed sinner who himself needed a Savior. I said, the God of the Bible is the eternal, uncreated creator of all, the infinite, the unchanging, all-knowing, all-powerful Savior of all. Which one do you think is more worthy of worship? Which one do you really think is worthy of your trust? The young man sat stunned in silence. You see, there was no comparison between the false god of Mormonism and the one true god of the Bible. There is no comparison between the Lord God of the Bible and any other so-called deities or idols or ideas. The Lord God alone is sovereignly caring and therefore alone is worthy of our trusts. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Ask God. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, he says in this passage. So I want you to notice how I used contrast in my discussion with those Mormons. 
I sought to draw the clear distinction between their God and the God of the Bible. And that is what Isaiah does in our passage here in chapter 46. Isaiah poetically contrasts the idols of the ancient Near Eastern people with the one true God. He starts with the manifold incompetencies of those foreign idols and deities, and then compares them with the utter competency of the Lord. And Isaiah draws these contrasts so that they and we would trust in the Lord alone and not in idols. He draws the contrast so that they and we would trust in the Lord alone and not in idols. This is because they continued to turn again and again and again and again to the idols of the foreign nations instead of trusting in the Lord. And we, the people of God, the church, we have the same propensity as they did back then. We swear allegiance to the Lord and are participants in His covenant and yet still manage to set up a bunch of idols in various areas of our lives. We trust Him for salvation and yet look to and trust in them for so many other things. Now, we might be tempted to think that we do not have the idol problem. After all, we don't tend to have small handcrafted statues or totems that we build an altar to and burn candles to and worship. But those are not the only kind of idols that we're talking about, is it? This is not the only form of idolatry that the people of God have been or will be faced with. So, we need to first define what an idol is. That way we can understand how a message like Isaiah's applies as much to us today as it did to the people of God back then. So, what is an idol? It's a great picture. It's a great illustration. We tend to think of idols as statues or icons or rings. For instance, if you walked into my office, you might be tempted to say that it is filled with idols. On the top shelf of my desk, I have a Bronco totem. And on the next shelf down, I have Wilson! Now, Wilson certainly looks like an idol, as does my Bronco totem. Off to one side of my room, I have a medium-sized statue of the National Monument to the Forefathers. You also might be troubled by my life-sized sort of reel, with elven symbols engraved into it. Yes, that is Aragorn's sword. Not the actual one, but it's close. Or my Lord of the Rings Pez set. That, by the way, was given to me by none other than another elder, who shall not be named, but it rhymes with yurt. <laughs> or my adorable little Nazgul or witch king pop figurines. <gasps> Did he say witch king? <gasps> Perhaps, though, you might be most disturbed by my globe collection. Yes. And that one that in the middle that floats, it really does float. It's pretty cool. But you think Kurt had a lot of Iowa Hawkeyes t-shirts? Wait till you see my globe collection. Now we tend to think of things like these as idols. In the Old Testament, idols were indeed man-made images, such as statues and icons and pictures and symbols that represented gods. Idols were believed to either be habitations for or personifications of their foreign deities, their gods. So the idolater was seeking after, was worshiping, was praying to, was serving and loving another god when they performed these very same actions before the idols. They bowed down to the idol, they were bowing down to a foreign god. So, idolatry is the act of worshiping, 
serving, placing undue confidence in, or giving uncalled allegiance to anyone or anything other than the Lord God. Let me repeat that. Idolatry is the act of worshiping, serving, placing undue confidence in, or giving uncalled for allegiance to anyone or anything other than the Lord your God, which was and is a direct violation of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And the second commandment, which derives from the first one, you shall not make an idol for yourself, a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water underneath. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. You see from that, an idol was only an idol if it was created with the intent to become a representation of a God. Or if it was worshipped or served as a God or like a God. So, if you walked into my office and saw me praying to the little totem for the Broncos to win, or in the Broncos' case, to score a blasted touchdown, (laughs) that would be idolatry. And so would the Broncos be an idol, and so would football be an idol if you saw me doing that. Or if you saw me praying to Wilson, asking Wilson for guidance, that would be idolatry. This is because idolatry has to do with the hearts of the people, both creating them and possessing them. Those things in my office, they're merely objects, merely decorations. What makes it an idol or not is my heart. In the New Testament, we see idolatry revealed in further detail, that it's not just statues. There we see covetousness described as idolatry in Colossians. The last verse in 1 John warns little children, keep yourselves from idols. Well, that's weird, because the preceding 107 verses of the book didn't mention idolatry once, which causes us to realize that idolatry is all throughout the book. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That is idolatry. A contrast is being drawn between loving the Father and loving the things that are in this world. The pride of life, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh. Idolatry occurs when we love something more than or in place of God. In other words, an idol is anything that causes the neglect of my worship of God or of my duty of obedience to Him. Listen to that one again. An idol is anything that causes the neglect of my worship of God or of my duty of obedience to him. Let me frame it a little differently, a little more functionally. An idol is something that we are willing to sin for in order to get. Yeah, this is going to get a little personal. An idol is something we are willing to sin for in order to get. An idol is also something that we covet because we do not have it. An idol is something that if you lost it, it would cause you to sin in response to that loss. Whether it be to forsake God, become sinfully angry, or to act out in some other sinful way, if we lost it, what would our response be? Do you see how these questions, through these questions, how an idol can cause the neglect of our obedience to God. Listen, anything other than God can become 
an idol. Anything other than God can become an idol. Friends, family, church, pleasure, food. Eric reminded me this morning, coffee. Social media, sex, career, your iPhone or your not iPhone, drugs, not just those physical things, but acceptance, wealth, security, comfort, freedom. These things in, of the, in and of themselves are not bad and are not idols. So how can these good things go bad and become idols? We corrupt them by the way we perceive them and feel about them. Hmm. We corrupt them by the way we perceive them and feel about them. As Raymond Ortland says, it's, it's not in our formal conscious commitments, but in our functional emotional commitments that we exchange the creator for something created. We trade down because the gift seems more real and more rewarding than the giver. That is idolatry. It's a matter of the heart. Modern day idols are not created in factories or wood shops, but in the recesses of our own hearts. As John the Calvinist said, our hearts are little idol-making factories. <laughs> our hearts are little idol-making factories. Yes, my office is filled with idols, but it's not any of the objects that I mentioned. It's those things that are often not visible that I secretly, in my heart, treasure more than God. Therefore, an idol in your life is anything that has been elevated to a position of importance that it should not have in your life. It then occupies the status of a God in your life. And to this, the Lord says, to whom will you liken me and make me equal? And compare me that we may be alike. To whom will you compare him? The question is what are we comparing with God and esteeming as higher than him? We are taking these imaginations and desires of our hearts, comparing them with God and determining that they are better than allegiance and obedience to him. Whether it be an obvious false god like a Buddha or a Vishnu, a radically distorted or diminished conception of the Lord like the Mormon deity that I talked about earlier, or something or feeling or experience that I desire more than God. All of these are false gods that we encounter today. Through this passage, the Lord, out of his compassion for us, wants to help us break the power of whatever idols we possess in our lives by helping us to understand the difference between him and them, what he does and what they do, why he is trustworthy and they are not. Because God is compassionate toward us, toward his people. He does not want us, want to see us suffer under the burden of idols, but to experience the joy and the freedom of worshiping him. That is the compassion of Christ in this passage. So the Lord's argument through Isaiah simply goes like this. Since the Lord alone sovereignly carries us, we should trust in Him alone and not in idols. 
Pretty simple. Isaiah provides us with two major contrasts or incentives. Why we should trust the Lord alone and not in idols. Number one, because idols are carried by us, but the Lord carries us. Number two, because idols are impotent, but the Lord is omnipotent. So let's begin with the first. We should trust in the Lord alone and not in idols, since idols are carried by us. Verse 1. Bell bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burden on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. So who are Bel and Nebo, you might ask? Well, they were the two chief gods of Babylon. Bel was the patron god of Babylon, the king of the gods, and Nebo was his eldest son, the secretary of the council of gods. These gods represented the ideals of Babylon and its culture. Now Isaiah depicts these two gods of Babylon as bowing down, stooping over and being carried on the backs of weary beasts. Now this was actually a description of a literal event that took place annually at their New Year's festival. The idol statues of Bel and Nebo were carried in grand procession through the city as tokens of good fortune for the coming year. But Isaiah uses this supposed regal ritual as a means of mocking these gods and illustrating their utter incompetence. He does this first by eliciting the image of them bowing down and stooping. The reader is supposed to picture in their mind the Babylonian priests in number tipping the statues over in order to fit them through the temple doors. You got it? You got it? Don't drop them! It's kind of like when you need to move your bookshelves or your mattress to a new place. You tip it over so that you can get it through the door. Now this is not the way of complimenting or esteeming these idols. It's flat out mockery. So, So you're telling me that you have to tip your gods over to get them to where you want them to go? (laughs) Really? (laughs) And finally, when this massive gaggle of priests gets these burdensome idols outside and are able to somehow hoist them onto the ox cart, They have to set it back right up again. Oh, you got it! Come on, we can get this thing! The idol can't set itself back up, can it? No. So they get it set back up, and then the massive weight of these stone statues becomes a weary burden on those poor animals that have to drag it through down. Isaiah is communicating that these idols are a burden, which he then says explicitly. I love the wording here. We miss it in English. Isaiah essentially says, these burdens, he uses the word burdens. We have idols. It says these idols. It's actually these burdens are borne by you just as they are borne by these poor, weary beasts. Think about that for just a second. These burdens are borne by you, just as they are by these poor, weary beasts. These idols are literally burdens. You bear the burden. You carry the weight of the idol. Further, he's not done. He says, they cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. These idols cannot deliver their worshipers from burdens. They cannot deliver Israel from captivity. But these idols will go into captivity themselves. They will one day be carried off from Babylon by a different nation, and their worshipers 
will, will be expected to take the time and energy to deliver these gods from captivity. Anybody see a problem with this? It's as if to say, if a god has to be carried, how can it carry you? If a god can't help itself, how in the world can it help you? If a god needs your strength, how can it strengthen you? It can't! I'll answer the question for y'all. All false gods and their idols increase our burdens. They do not carry them or alleviate them. They add to rather than ease the weight on our shoulders. If you have a burden and wish to make it heavier, oh, oh, this is so... Can anybody increase my burden for me, please? What? What are you talking about? If you want heavier burdens, then go to these idols because they sure will help you. There's no better illustration of this than the picture that I gave before of the one ring in Lord of the Rings. It's transfixed by it. There's a love he has for it. And yet, we see through the movie how it becomes heavier and heavier and heavier. At one point, Frodo says to Sam, it's such a weight, Sam. It's such a weight to carry. And it's no different in our day. Perhaps your idol is a good reputation. I'm just going to pick one out. My idol is a good reputation, whether, whether it be in the workplace or, or at church or with friends. How many of you have ever tried to maintain a good reputation? None of you? Wow. <laughs> Let me ask you something. Does obsessing over what people think about you, constantly figuring out how to maneuver and manipulate settings and people, having to watch every word, the way you dress, the way you behave, and constantly fretting over what people think about you, does that alleviate your burden or make it heavier? Heavier. It's a burden. And it's not just with that. I could give many examples of relational idols that become such a weight to carry. Having, making, and keeping friends. The need for and the maintaining of respect. Success in the eyes of others. The need for acceptance. I want to feel accepted. And so I add more and more and more and more of a burden. None of these things are idols in and of themselves, folks. But if we place inordinate emphasis or importance on them, then they do become an idol and a burden to our souls. So instead of trusting in idols that are carried by us, we should trust in the Lord who carries us. Verse 3, listen to me, O house of Jacob, listen to me. All the remnant of the house of Israel, listen. You who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he. And to your gray, gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made you, and I will bear. I will carry, and I will save. Listen to those words. What do we need when we are burdened? 
not only for the burden to be removed. Now that's good, but what do we need more? For someone to carry us. Talk about a removal of a burden. I don't have to walk the path anymore because the Lord picks me up and carries me. The Lord points Israel to the contrast between them having to carry things and the truth that He carries them. It's the contrast between Frodo carrying the ring and Sam carrying Frodo. They tried to bear the weight of idols, but the Lord bears His people. And that, He says, is not only what He will do, but what He has been doing from the very beginning, from before their birth. He is the God of their yesterdays. Before Abraham was born, He was their God. He formed them and He chose them. He took them through Egypt and the Red Sea, through the wilderness, into the promised land, and then into their captivity. He has carried them all along. And not only has He, but He will continue to, even to their old age, into gray hair. He is the one who was and is and is to come their God. It's like Mike said a few weeks ago, He has given them past grace, continues to give them present grace, and will give them future grace. They have always been and will continue to be carried in His arms of love. And this is true of all of God's chosen people. It reminds me of that beloved poem, Footprints in the Sand. Many of you have heard it. It says, One night, a man had a dream. He dreamed he was walking along the beach with the Lord. And across the sky flashed scenes from his life. For each scene, he noticed two sets of footprints in the sand. One belonged to him, the other to the Lord. When the last scene of his life flashed before him, he looked back at the footprints in the sand. He noticed that many times along the path, his life there was only one of his life, there was only one set of footprints. He also noticed that it happened at the very lowest and saddest times in his life. This really bothered him, and he questioned the Lord about it. Lord, you said that once I decided to follow you, you'd walk with me all the way. But I've noticed that during the most troublesome times in my life, there is only one set of footprints. I don't understand why, when I need you most, you would leave me. The Lord replied, My precious, precious child, I love you and I would never leave you. During your times of trial and suffering, when you see only one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you. Now, that's a beautiful picture, but the analogy is wrong, folks. You see, For those of you who are His, there has only ever been one set of footprints. That's what the picture has. I don't know why the poem went wrong. One set of footprints from before your birth. He has carried you. While you were in the womb, He carried you. In His arms of love, He took you up to Himself. Before you were saved, guess what? Before the foundations of the world, He carried you. And He has carried you. And He is carrying you this moment. And He will carry you to the end. There's one set of footprints. Our loving Father holding us close to Himself. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me, that we may be alike. Who else has done this? Who else? The Lord alone. So instead of turning to idols and carrying them as burdens on our backs, the Lord Jesus provides you the other option. Come to me, 
all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Point number two. We should trust in the Lord alone and not in idols, since idols are impotent. By impotent, I mean they literally have no power. They are inanimate objects, lifeless and powerless. Verse 6, those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, they hire a goldsmith and, and he makes it into a god, then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place. And it stands there. Do something, please. Please, please. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, come on. Come on, you can do it. Go. Anybody? Hey, can you come move this for me? Oh, wait. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Now, it's pretty difficult to talk about something that is impotent for any length of time. Because, well, it's impotent. How do you talk about something that can't do anything? Hmm. It can't move from its place. It can't breathe. It can't answer a prayer or a question because it has neither the power nor the intelligence to do so. It has no life. It has no power, no will, no desire, no capabilities. An idol can do the same thing that a rock is capable of doing by its own power. What is that? Nothing. Zero, zip, zilch, nada. How then can this slab of inanimate matter save you? Let alone Israel or Babylon from captivity. That's Isaiah's point. And yet the people who by their own hands crafted it or chiseled it out of inanimate material, fall down and worship it. Now this, come on. Really? We're smarter than that, aren't we, people? It just seems incredulous to worship something that is the work of your own hands. It seems nonsensical. It only exists because you created it. So why, when you are the power and the mover behind it, and it has no power, would you turn to it to save you? But we do it all the time. But we do it all the time. Remember, idols are often representative. They represent those things that we treasure and value. The concepts in our minds and fleshly passions that we worship. Those concepts have no substance. They themselves are impotent, inanimate objects, and are the creation of our sinful minds and sinful desires. And we fall down and worship those things. The elevated ideas of wealth, Security. We all want security, don't we? Do we fall down and worship so that we get it? Popularity, personal peace, prosperity, pleasure. Often these conceptions and expectations that we have created in our own minds and hearts have become our gods. And in the end, they are impotent 
to save you or deliver you from the truth's burdens that your soul carries. So instead of trusting in idols that are impotent, we should trust in the Lord who is omnipotent. Verse 9, I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. What a beautiful description of the sovereignty and omnipotence of God. That's really all this is. The Lord is saying that everything that He declares comes to pass because He has the power to bring to pass everything that He declares. Everything that He declares comes to pass because He has the power to bring to pass everything that he declares. That is why he can declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. Not only because he is omniscient, but primarily because he is omnipotent. That is, he is all-powerful. This simply means that God has the power or the ability to do whatever he wants to do whenever he wants to do it. My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. There is nothing outside of God that limits Him. There are no hindrances, nor external restrictions. Nothing can stay His hand. There is nothing that can frustrate His will. The Lord God is sovereign. He is free to do whatever He pleases. And He possesses the unlimited ability to bring to pass what He pleases. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass, He says. I have purposed, and I will do it. So the Lord holds complete power over all creation. And no part of creation stands outside the scope of His sovereign control. Idols possess no power, while the Lord possesses all power. So why would you then not place all of your marbles into His basket? the one who is able to do whatever he pleases, why would we not place our trust in him, in the omnipotent one instead of the impotent ones? I'll tell you why. I think it's simply because we want to be in control. And we don't want to have to wait upon or trust the will and the wisdom of another. We want to be God and to be able to bring about whatever we please whenever we desire it. And so we create gods after our own heart and desires. We make the gods in our own image. The internet and current religious climate are chock full of these gods that man has fashioned after his own image and lustful desires. And it's not just those so-called gods of religions like Hinduism, Islam, or Buddhism, nor the imaginary deities of cults like Mormons and Jadabs. False beliefs and false ideas of God are infiltrating the Christian church at a breathtaking pace. People disliking certain attributes of the biblical God that do not appeal to their preferred idea of what they think God should be like. Twisting the scriptures to mean what they want them to say, calling their God the Christian God and deceiving others into believing these idolatrous ideas. Now, we can look down our noses in derision at all of those people who twist God into someone more palatable. But guess what? We reform types do the same thing. We're no less prone to reimagining certain attributes of God that we don't like or that don't fit into the categories that we make. 
I can't tell you how many times that I've seen others do this or that I have personally done this with Reformed truths. I take a biblical truth about God and instead of seeing what the rest of Scripture has to say about it, I carry it to what I think is the logical conclusion. What I think is the logical conclusion. Thereby either exaggerating or diminishing both that attribute as well as other attributes along the way. Just kick them out of the way as I go. Ah, that doesn't fit. See you later. You see, I have trouble being content with mystery. Any of you all there? And you know what? The infinite God that does not fit into my finite compartments is a mystery a lot of the time. Let Scripture tell you who God is. Let God tell you who He is. Don't just sit there and say, well, therefore, and therefore, and therefore, and therefore, and therefore, and therefore. Who cares about the Bible? I now know this. Anyway, I digress. Back to the power of the Lord God and Him bringing to pass what He has purposed. He continues, verse 12, Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. And my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. So here again we see another promise of God's salvation in these chapters. He has promised to bring it to pass by His power. There is perhaps no greater demonstration of the power of God in Scripture than how God brought this promise to pass. The promise of salvation. As Peter proclaims, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, being crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Later, we're told that everything that happened around the crucifixion of Jesus was to do whatever God's hand and plan had predestined to take place. The sinless life and substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross in our place to pay the penalty for our sin was the very definition, the very demonstration of the omnipotence of God bringing to pass righteousness bringing near the righteousness of God to His people. Amen? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is what? The power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness... Wait a minute, didn't he talk about that in Isaiah? Oh! Whoa! The righteousness of God is revealed. 1 Corinthians, for the word of the cross is folly. Oh, we heard that this morning. To those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is what? The power of God. For Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us near. The Lord has spoken, and He has brought it to pass. So where does this leave us? Where did it leave Isaiah's readers? simply with the opening challenge of whether they were going to trust the Lord or idols. 
Like I said at the beginning, this isn't an all-or-nothing proposition. Either you worship God or you worship idols. The, the, the problem is that we do both. It's always been that way about the many and varied areas of life. This is about discovering where our idols are and replacing them with the Lord God. And so what can we do about it? What's our application? How can we trust God and not idols? How do we identify and remove the various areas of idolatry in our lives to trust Him more? Well, the imperative statements, the commands, the instructions of this passage are almost completely contained in verses 8 and 9. There it says, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. The imperatives are remember, recall, and stand firm. Now, remember and recall are actually two different things. We tend to think of them as the same. They are not the same here. Remember means to make known, to profess, to make mention of, to proclaim this truth. And recall means to return to it. Return this truth to your mind. I see three things here that we are to remember, recall, and stand firm in that will help us to trust in the Lord and not in idols. Number one, remember who you are. Remember who you are. This is one of the themes that we have seen consistently arising through these messages in Isaiah. Now, if we look at the passage, you might be thinking that I'm going to tell you to remember yourself as a transgressor or as a sinner, but it's actually 180 degrees from that. Because righteousness has been brought near. We have become the righteousness of God. That is my identity. That is who I am. If you have trusted in Christ, you are in Christ. That is who you are. Now recently, Marcus and I have been discussing the Christian's identity, and he pointed out to me a profound truth that I had never seen before in Scripture. He said that in the New Testament, believers are rarely ever referred to as sinners. Huh. Rather, they are almost exclusively referred to as either saints or holy ones. Wow. Wow. Now, obviously, the New Testament writers are not saying that believers do not sin. We all know better than that. But they are referring to our identity. I am no longer identified as a sinner, even though I still sin. But I am a saint redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, who is being sanctified by Christ. My identity as a believer is saint. It is Holy One. Good morning, saints. You Holy Ones of the Lord. Why? Because I have been made positionally righteous by Christ. So reading this through New Testament eyes, the label transgressors would be replaced with that of saints. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you saints of the Lord. That's who you are if you are in Christ. It's how you ought to view yourself. A saint that, yes, still sins. A holy one that, yes, still transgresses. Nonetheless, you are a saint and a holy one. Remember. Proclaim, profess this truth about yourself to yourself. Christ has redeemed me. It's not a he's, he's gone to. 
He might. No, He has. He has redeemed you, O Holy One. You are positionally holy because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And then, frequently recall it to mind and stand firm in that truth. Since you are a saint, how then should a saint walk? Should a saint's life contain multiple idols along with the true God? No! Good answer! Since you are one who has been made holy by the precious blood of Christ, how then should a holy one act? Would a holy one want a bunch of unholy idols as a part of their worship of the one true God? Everybody say? Everybody say? Thank you. Lord, please help me to live out the identity that you have given me. Number two, remember who the Lord is and what he's done. He says, remember this, stand firm, recall it to mind, you saints. Remember the former things of old that I am God. There is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Contemplate who he is, what he's done, what he will do. Make him your treasure. Set your mind on him. Fill your thoughts with who he is. Proclaim, remember, proclaim his splendor and majesty, his mercy and his grace, his power and his wisdom, his righteousness and his justice, his holiness and his glory. Remember them. Proclaim them. Proclaim them to yourself. Hey, Jason, did you know that God is holy? No, really? Yeah! You want to see how awesome he is? Oh, I want to see. Let's see. Tell them to yourself over and over and over and over again. Meditate upon them in Scripture and how, have, how they've manifested themselves through His acts, through the former things of old, through His faithfulness and the demonstration of His might to Abraham and Isaac and David and Jonathan and, and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Israel and Judah and to you in Jesus Christ. All of those people God demonstrated for your sake to show himself to you, his trustworthiness, his goodness, his love and mercy to you. And then recall it to mind over and over. We have a saying around here. Give me three seconds and I'll forget the gospel. Three seconds. Therefore, what do we need to do? Recall it to mind. The power of God in the cross. That splendor, that majesty of who God is. Recall Him to mind. His wisdom and His holiness in the cross for you. If you doubt God's love for you, there's one thing you need to look at and that is the cross. His love for you, His mercy for you, His kindness to you, His justice displayed, His wrath displayed, His wisdom displayed in manifold ways to you. You know, if you consume and enamor yourself with the glory and the resplendence of the Lord, then what time or place will these idols have to occupy within you? It's, it seems simple enough. We all know it's much harder than we think. But it is simple. Meditate on the Lord. What who He is. And number three. Remember who idols are and their utter futility. In other words... There is none like him. 
Remember this, sins. Stand firm, recall it to mind. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Proclaim to yourself time and again that there is no one like God, that there are, that all other so-called gods and idols are vain, ineffectual, insipid. They are deaf, dumb, useless. They are not worthy of your worship. They increase your burdens. They cannot save you from your troubles, but only add to them. And then recall this to mind when you fall. And then recall this to mind when you fall. We're all going to fall at some point when we leave here. When we do, look back in hindsight at that sin and assess it to discover its underlying motivation. For in discovering and analyzing the underlying motivation, what are you going to find? Oh, they're that, they're that idol. Oh, now I'm aware of the idol. Let's go kill it. Let's throw it in the trash. And then, that's not enough. If you just leave the hole empty, you know, the demon comes in. They cast it out. Oh, now I'm, I'm clean, and, clean and well swept and seven more come in. No! You got to fill it. Fill the idol with Christ. With the glory and majesty of God. C.S. Lewis once said, We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink, and sex, and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. What a picture of idolatry. The contrast of mud pies in a slum versus a holiday at sea. Preferring an idol is like preferring scrounging through the dumpster for day-old leftover spoiled scraps of half-eaten trash over a free all-you-can-eat meal at the world's finest restaurant. But that's not the whole of it. The owner of the restaurant is your loving father. And you... And you, remember who you are. You're the heir. You can come in at any time and have anything on that menu forever. Just you go to the window and you stare out at that dumpster across the street. And the guy from the, from the pet store has just carried out Everything and dumped it in the dumpster. I can't wait to go. Go dig through all that dung in order to find those little bits of food that were left over that the dogs didn't eat. Really? Who or what Will you compare to the Lord and make equal with Him? Nothing. No one. He is God and there is no other. He is God and there is none like Him. We should therefore trust in the Lord alone and not in idols since He sovereignly carries us. Let's pray. God of our yesterdays, the God who is here today and now, and who is to come, the Almighty, we praise you that you have always been there for us and will always be there for us. May our eyes be focused on you. May we see your greatness, your majesty, your glory.
and be filled with it, Lord, so that idols look as disgusting as I just pictured them. Only because we see your glory will we see the filth. God, give us a vision of yourself. Give us a vision of the cross, the beauty, the power, the wisdom of the cross. Oh, Lord, fill us with it. Entrance us with a vision of you, oh, God, so that we worship you in every area of life. Amen.